Hi, everyone. Welcome to episode 107 of the Lift Free and Diet Hard podcast. I'm your host, Andrew Coates. And the last time Holly Baxter was on, I had Dean Guido as my co-host, and we were doing it as a fitness devil. And it's been a really long time, big gap between appearances. But uh, Holly, it's great to have you back. In fact, if I'm not mistaken, I think we gave you one of your first uh, earliest North American podcast appearances uh, way back when. It must have been like three and a half or four years ago, it seems like. I think maybe 2018, if you guys were around then, <laughs> or 2017. We started this in 2017, and you were relatively early in the mix. So it's great to have you. If anybody's not you know, intimately familiar with your background, you have a master's in dietetics. You're a practicing clinic, uh, clinical dietitian. You're obviously a, a coach. And you have been a dedicated fitness competitor, very successful one over the years. So it's great to have you. And I guess... We can start kind of with the the dedicated competition experience because anybody who's been following your media for a long time, you uniquely stayed visibly lean and muscular for like a very, very extended period of time. It's almost as if you were, you know, just a few weeks out from, and that's a perception, but it looked like you were a few weeks out from like stage ready the whole time. And you did a lot of shows now very recently on your media, you've been open about uh, some of the challenges that you've had with your own personal hormonal profile. You just had on your social media that your your testosterone levels are low. And of course, women or even some coaches might be sort of confused about testosterone with women. We can dabble on that. But I guess, would you share kind of, let's start with some of the pitfalls of women, especially trying to stay that sort of stage lean and doing a lot of competitions over a course of a few years. Yeah, so there's a massive misconception that that is super uh, achievable, it's easy, and that there's no sacrifices required to do it. So um, I, I guess I am extremely transparent with my audience. And, you know, I never used to be that way. I think, like many women, there was this kind of, I guess, self-inflicted pressure to to stay lean. And that meant that I was relevant. Um, you know, I was, um, you know, somebody that people would aspire to. And then, you know, that gave me more street cred, uh, so to speak. So I definitely um, put a lot of pressure on myself to, to stay that way, uh, you know, in the early part of my fitness journey. But I think I kind of quickly realized that, you know, with growing uh, responsibilities and obligations, like from a business sense, uh, I also moved from Australia to the US, uh, you know, to be married. And then I kind of stepped into this role as a step parent. Um, it kind of gave me the perspective like, wow, you know, this is actually really, really tough. Um, I don't think that it changed my, you know, desires to, you know, stay fit and and healthy and then to continue competing. Um, but it definitely gave me a better perspective for how like the average person would have to try and manage, you know, all of these different responsibilities and priorities. So I think the first thing that I, I will say to that is that a lot of the top uh, athletes and competitors that we see on social media um, and that get a lot of media in general, um, these people are either single and they don't have, you know, anybody else that they have to manage. Um, or if they're in a relationship, then they don't have children. Um, you know, it's just a very different lifestyle. Um, or if, for instance, like a female perhaps that is uh, married and does by chance happen to have children, then there's probably a lot of additional support uh, or sacrifices being made in areas that you wouldn't necessarily think about. 
So I think the first thing that I say to a lot of women that are aspiring to look like these professional athletes or the bikini competitors um, is that it is probably not obtainable, uh, certainly not for any lengthy period of time for the average person. Um, you know, I know having uh, several different business businesses and wearing many hats in those companies, uh, whilst also, you know, still trying to parent and, you know, have my own goals. It's just a lot to manage. So one of the things that I always joke about and say is like, I haven't, I haven't sat down voluntarily to watch TV or a series or a movie in years. Uh, in fact, when I moved from Australia to US and I was selling all of my, um, you know, things and I had someone come to my house to kind of pick up my TV and I laughed because they asked me, hey, you know, this comp, this remote looks really complicated. Can you teach me how to use it? And I just laughed and I'm like, look, things about three years old. I don't think I've ever even turned it on. Sorry, like you're asking the wrong person. So, you know, I don't have uh, a lot of downtime, whereas other people might use that to relax or, you know, you're sitting down scrolling your social media or you're having phone calls and doing fun stuff. You know, you're getting out of the house and, you know, spending time with friends. You know, a lot of that time is um, sacrificed in efforts to be consistent with gym or to be consistent with the requirements of your diet, particularly as you go into like a competition phase. So I think there's a lot of, um, you know, adjusting of people's expectations uh, and really being realistic about what somebody can do. And I know that my role as a coach now, um, you know, is really to help people um, kind of time block, look at their schedules. Um, how many hours of the week are you committing to your job? Okay, what time have we got left? And then what about your other priorities? So, you know, do you want to have a social life? Put it on your calendar. Okay, do you want to spend time with your significant other? Put that on your calendar too. Do you want to have any downtime? Put that in your calendar. And then basically what we've got left is training and your meal prep. And for a lot of people, that doesn't necessarily work out. So I think managing those expectations for people and really helping them to understand, you know, is this obtainable? And if it is, what's the likely time frame, um, you know, given the free time that you have to get to that goal? And unfortunately, no one has patience anymore. We all want things yesterday. You know, we're so used to getting, you know, instant gratification, instant communication. So, you know, we seem to have this idea that our physique is going to change uh, in a similar way. But that's just not the reality for a lot of us. So I think that's really one of the most important things uh, for people to realize in that there is a lot of sacrifice uh, from a social standpoint, relational, and you don't get the same kind of downtime. Was I there, think, oh, sorry, you go. <laughs> was there a point where you may have thought, okay, I need to have this almost superhuman appearance publicly to be credible and relevant? And was there an inflection point where you realized, wait a second, this may be creating an unrealistic expectation for people and that you've had a shift to wanting to be a bit more relatable to the type of people that you were coaching and influencing? Did that happen at all? Yeah, absolutely. So my kind of, we'll call it my healing journey. It's not really, I know that's not a very scientific word as somebody that's a science educator, but um, mm -hmm. my personal healing journey um, has kind of um, transcended over the last, you know, six or seven years, really. And I think, you know, when I first got into that sport, my standards for myself, and that's not just like 
physically in so far as like how I look to, you know, the public. Um, it was also a standard that I created for myself in every domain of my life. Um, I grew up in an environment where it wasn't necessarily a lot of um, unconditional love. It was very conditional based upon my performance, whether that was in my school, my grades, academics, education, uh, through to my performance in, you know, all of my sports. So track, basketball, um, anything of that nature. So, you know, once I kind of grew up and got to school, like I always set such high standards for myself. And whilst that can be a really admirable characteristic and, you know, being ambitious and driven is, you know, that's a great thing to have um, compared to, you know, having no, none at all. Um, I think, you know, we kind of get to the point where we have to, again, look at um, what we can actually realistically do with our, our 24 hours a day. And, you know, how does that align and fit in with your priorities? So I absolutely carried this belief um, or this narrative that in efforts to be taken seriously, particularly in a male um, predominant industry, you know, I'd say, you know, fitness competitors um, as it relates to females, this is not necessarily a, a really like, oh, we don't have a huge history. It's the history of bodybuilding and physique sports is predominantly male. Uh, the history of, you know, exercise science uh, and nutrition, if we think about, you know, some of the well-known um, educators uh, and people that have been around for a long time, you know, it, it's predominantly men. So I think there was this kind of expectation that I put on myself and perhaps also from a societal standpoint where if I want to be taken seriously, I've got to walk the walk and talk the talk. Um, whereas males tend to, you know, have that authority just because of the history, um, you know, of exercise science and bodybuilding, uh, but don't necessarily necessarily have to carry that same um, physique, so to speak. So I think in my own journey of healing and kind of recovering from some of my past trauma and uh, I guess changing my own set of beliefs over the years, I've definitely come to realize that I cannot do it all. And I truly felt like I needed to be able to do it all at all times. And then every time something wasn't done perfectly um, or I couldn't meet that demand, I'd, put, I'd be so um, you know ashamed and I'd feel guilty and disappointed in myself uh, and that I'd let other people down. But the reality is like there was no way I was going to be able to do all of that. So I've definitely softened my, uh, my attitude uh, towards myself. I've developed uh, a much greater sense of compassion um, and kindness for, you know, how I I look at myself and what I'm capable of doing. And I think the consequence or the downstream effect is that that's also now my approach with my clients. It's really about helping them recognize, you know, number one, when are you actually slacking and when are you really doing everything that you can uh, to achieve your goal, um, you know, your health and fitness goal. Um, but then um, similarly, are you actually asking too much of yourself? And, you know, is there too much internal, external pressure? And do we need to kind of ease up and, you know, develop a better sense um, of, you know, compassion for, for you as an individual outside of your, your body and your aesthetics? You dove into something, you touched on something I was going to ask about later, but I, I like the idea of bringing it right to the forefront. The fact that there are, the industry traditionally, especially when it comes to strength and conditioning, and I would certainly say 
the evidence-based corner of the fitness world has been predominantly men for a very long time. And you are probably one of the more prominent, highly educated women in this space. There are others, uh, Sohi Lee, for example. And uh, first time I met you, it was actually Sohi invited me to come down to an event in, we were in Dallas and we got to meet briefly there. That was wonderful. But you guys are kind of the exception. So what do you, how do you feel about being that role model? I mean, again, does that put more pressure on you? And are there pitfalls or things that draw women away? Are there reasons why women don't necessarily follow in your guys' footsteps? Is it just there hasn't been enough people yet? And how would you encourage more female coaches to step into that space? Any any of your thoughts on that whole dynamic? Yeah, look, I think um, for a lot of people, I mean, we're, we're visual creatures. Um, you know, sex sells. Science doesn't necessarily sell. So I think, you know, people that are initially kind of coming across, you know, fitness influences, they're being drawn to, you know, something that's visual and it's usually aesthetic. Um, and that's, that's fine. Um, you know, I tend to draw on that as well. You know, I'm, I, who I, I am, who I am. I, I don't want to, you know, poo poo my, my appearance. I'm not going to like completely discard, like, this is who I am. But I think stepping into that, um, that person and being vulnerable and trying to practice out of, um, like autonomy, like, I know for a very long time I denied my true authentic self um, and it took me a long time to, you know, realise and recognise that if I'm not being me and I'm not really um, owning who I am and what I'm about, uh, it's going to attract the wrong types of people anyway and I'm not going to feel fulfilled doing that. So I think I kind of portrayed this very strong, um, hard-headed, uh, you know, nothing can break me type attitude for a long time. Um, and that was the type of people that I was, you know, attracting to, you know, my my content. Um, but over time, like as I started to realize that, you know, that's not really something that's sustainable. There are a lot of negative um, consequences and symptoms of dieting um, that were just not being shared. I, I really struggled in that place. That's where I was at my most, um, you know, lowest point. Um, I, I was suffering with depression. Uh, I know that I had body dysmorphia. Uh, I was struggling with uh, body checking type behaviors. Uh, and I really did not value myself. Um, I didn't have a lot of uh, value for my worth outside of my physical appearance. And it just, it was such a tall order. So I think over time, as I've kind of come to realize that, you know, it's, it wasn't necessarily something that's sustainable, um, my my attitude and tone has shifted uh, towards, you know, a little bit more um, vulnerability, transparency, and now when I'm talking about a lot of the, the issues that are, you know, coming up for women, um, people are saying, oh, my God, thank God that you're talking about this because, you know, we see so many people showing this, like, almighty strength and, you know, that nothing seems to phase them whilst we're sitting back here behind the screens observing going, how do they do this? But it was just because they weren't talking about it or they didn't feel like they had uh, any flexibility to uh, to perform like subpar. So I'm not really sure exactly what it is about Sohi and I that have kind of that have put us in out the positions that we are. But I do think there's a certain element of like body acceptance and recognizing that we can achieve 
the same outcomes, which for many of us is really, um, you know, like I want to be happy. I want to, you know, love the body that I am in. I want to, uh, you know, enjoy my weekends regardless of my body shape. I want to enjoy, uh, you know, my social life and what I do for work regardless of how I look. So I think we're just talking about it more. Um, you know, I think more and more people are kind of getting on board with the fact that we can achieve happiness through ways and means that are not necessarily, you know, physique related. Um, and there's a lot of uh, work to be done on our like psychology uh, and our mindset that can ultimately lead to the same outcome, but without some of those really negative consequences that are associated with calorie restriction and excessive exercise. And yeah, like you and Sohi are, are really good examples. I think there's also something to it too. You're two of the people who built the largest followings in this space. So it, that stands out. And I guess there are probably a lot of really qualified people. In fact, I know tons of qualified people. They haven't necessarily grown the same level of prominence and following that you guys have. So it can create the illusion. But we also know that the industry tends to be dominated by men. Um, I'm hoping that changes as we go. We see more parity and we see more good people and great resources. So that way, the consumer, young coaches, female male coaches, female male consumers can find people that resonate most with them. And we also have people like, you know, Jill Coleman and Molly Galbraith are just a couple of great examples of people who are doing what I think really awesome things. You and Sohi are a little bit more on the, you know, the, the, the evidence-based side of things where you guys have the very, you know, the forward-facing high-level education in this space. Uh, Either way, I think that you guys are all doing really great stuff. It's why, I, you know, I keep bringing you guys all back on the podcast. Um, I'm speaking at an event where Molly and Jill are both uh, coming up now in February. And actually, we tried to get Sohi for the event as well, but she wasn't available. So uh, I think there's also something to be said for, you know, those really good people. You take them and you put them as forefront on your media as possible while they're also doing a great job. Is there anybody else in the industry that you really like what they're doing, they're looking, you know, you look up to or you found, um, you you like sharing and supporting? Um, look, I, I don't spend a whole lot of time personally on social media outside of the content that I'm sharing. I wish I could say that there's like here are the top 10 accounts that I follow, but I, I do spend a lot of time, you know, behind the scenes reading and like looking at uh, papers and studies so that I'm giving, you know, educational, you know, accurate content. So I think my interests have kind of stemmed more towards self-development and psychology and neuroscience. Um, one of, again, one of the major um, hurdles that I had to overcome in my own like radical journal, journal of radical self-acceptance um, was changing my, um, the way that I viewed myself. Um, so I really kind of dug deep into the, the literature that relates to uh, neuropsychology, uh, I guess, brain uh, plasticity and how to go about like behavior change. So I have, that's mostly where I am, but it's not on a social media space, like looking for people to follow. Um, I'm, I'm going to the journals and I'm kind of looking at what the latest, um, you know, scientific studies are saying. So I, um, I've definitely got a lot of um, references. I think I've got a whole list that I could share with your audience um, for places that I've been um, and found really valuable information. So um, how about this? Yeah. Like, what are some of the things that 
coaches would benefit from knowing? Like, I mean, some accessible ideas. I mean, we obviously hear that cognitive behavioral therapy, definitely very evidence-based, very proven to be able to change the way that people, you know, how they feel about things. It's great for things like depression, but can you like give us a few things that coaches should be alert to, maybe some resources? Because I, I don't think most people really get like just get jazzed up to go and read research. We know that there are other people who love it, but for me, I tend to deflect people like yourself. I was just with, I was just at the Olympia this weekend with like Dr. Mike Isertel and the Renaissance periodization team, Dr. James Hoffman. And they're some of my favorite resources for people who I know will be reading the studies and I trust them as a collective. There's a whole lot of other people that their interpretations of this stuff is going to be the stuff that I consume and utilize. So some stuff that would help coaches. Yeah. So I think um, if I'm to reflect on my own practices and then practices that I have observed, like with my own team, as we've grown, um, I've definitely come to value and appreciate the importance of uh, like an integrated allied health team. So I used to just work in isolation and it was very rare that I would reach out and try to uh, collaborate with um, another um, area of expertise. So in the space of clinical psychology uh, or whether I would go to rehabilitation experts. So now a big part of my practice is really making sure that my clients and efforts to get the best results from their like aesthetic, if they're coming to me for exercise and nutrition intervention, um, you know, if there's any perceived um, struggles or limitations um, that are outside my area of expertise, I'm really trying to form like a collaborative relationship with these other therapists, um, you know, working in conjunction with each other um, uh, to, to get the best response. So one of the reasons I now have a team that is uh, going to consist of a physical therapist, chiropractic, uh, mental health counseling, um, hormone therapy experts, um, and then like a medical team is for the very reason that people don't exist with, you know, a physical goal that doesn't also get impacted by a host of variables. It's such a complex web um, of ex external environmental factors that influence somebody's ability to get results. You know, their relationship could be one of the main uh, contributing factors for them not being able to be compliant with their macro target. So I could know everything someone can possibly know about, you know, different types of food and its constituents and exactly do all the math that's required to set somebody's macro targets and make the perfect adjustment. But if they've got some kind of external environmental factor that is influencing their ability um, or their behaviours, then my knowledge is pointless. I need to be able to tap into those um, you know, resources and get help so that they can be successful. So I think that for any coaches out there that are specifically uh, exercise science nutrition background, um, you need to establish really good connections with these other allied health members because that is where we really start to see lasting, um, you know, weight loss uh, results. I've got a few friends. I mean, Dean Somerset is here at Edmonton. He's talked about this stuff for years. He's uh, very well respected in injury, rehabilitation, mobility stuff. And he's built a lot of relationships with the local allied healthcare professionals and it's created referral pipelines because he's, you know, travels the world and gives presentations on this stuff from the, the, the trainer side of things. So they respect him and they send business to him, which could also be really valuable. I've got a couple of physical therapists that I trust with everything. And for me, it's yeah. not about, okay, what do I get out of this? It's about, 
these people are an extension of my resources and my ability to create a world-class experience for my clients. And I don't care what comes back my way. I'm probably too busy to be able to take on a whole bunch of this stuff, which is a nice problem, but I just want to have good resources. Uh, the facility that I contract out of has mental health therapy uh, mm -hmm. professionals in there. Uh, there's chiropractors in there. The chiropractors are really great. And it's it's like anything too. I mean, there are good and bad physical therapists or good and bad chiropractors or good and bad personal trainers. So we actually do have to develop a relationship with the people who do good work. That goes without saying. Yeah, absolutely. Look, I think um, my my best years of coaching have probably been in the last three uh, as I've really started to utilize those services and also look at the client, you know, from a more holistic um, standpoint and, you know, ask more questions and be open to listening. And I I, I feel like in my day-to-day -day practice now, and I, I do two days of coaching, so I have about 20 hours worth of uh, just one-on-one -on -one client work, which I still love doing. Um, but it's really, it's like a combined role of psychology, uh, dietetics, and, you know, exercise science. So, um, I think the you need to be able to tap into all of those resources. So one of the things that I'm very adamant about doing myself is getting back in um, to do extra, you know, ongoing professional development in those areas that are not my core competencies. So I obviously went to college and did an undergrad in food science and nutrition and a master's in dietetics, but I didn't at any point do anything specific to, you know, psychology. So my resources, when I do have spare time, that's what I'm looking into. And one of the things that my clients tend to love is that for birthdays and also as like a welcome gift, uh, when they sign up with me, like I'm giving them books based on the feedback that they've given me in their, you know, client initial information um, questionnaires. So I have uh, a bunch of different um, questions that kind of relate to like, what are your limitations? What do you feel like your your weaknesses are? Uh, where do you trip up? You know, based on how they kind of answer those responses, um, I'm sending them books so that, yes, you're here to work with me on nutrition and exercise science, but I want you upskilling and setting boundaries with people. I want you to learn, you know, how to break your bad habits, um, you know, through the, like the, the experts in those respective fields. So, um, you know, that's kind of part of my my role It's to be able to provide resources and, you know, give them the connections that they need to fix the whole, you know, the whole person, not just those individual uh, elements. And I really like that having I, I binge books, a lot of it's audio, but it gives you the ability to have a lot of resources. And, you know, when it comes to things like habits, you're probably referring to things like James Clear's um, Atomic Habits or BJ Fogg's yes. Habits. Met James in 2017 at an event before his book launched. And he's a sweet, wonderful guy. So it just makes it that much easier to endorse that book. Or one of my mm -hmm. favorite uh, recommendations are Brene Brown's books when it comes to that emotional relationship side of things. There's so much embedded in there, especially with our relationship with guilt and shame. And a lot of this stuff plays into nutritional and emotional eating behavior. So I love Brene as a resource as well. Do you have any other favorites that you tend to recommend to your clients? Oh, goodness. I've read so many books this year. I'm going to read out just like titles. So um, most of them are habit related. It's like how to make, break bad habits, um, you know, how to like self-motivate, how to uh, overcome depression and anxiety, uh, how to manage stress. There, oh goodness, I'm terrible when it comes to remembering the name of authors, but <laughs> I've read a lot of books this year, that's for sure. Um, perhaps I can give you all of the the links so that the people that are listening have, can have my entire 2022 collection uh, of books that I've read. So that might be a good way to start. 
I, I always post on Facebook my everything I've read or that I recommend each year. So I actually find that's really cool and people like it. But uh, I won't worry about trying to get into the specific books. I mean, also, people can probably like, you know, reach you on social media, ask you questions, uh, mm -hmm. tell them after. But I think one of the other things I was interested to, and I, I've been asking this of a lot of my guests because I'm interested in this, is sort of what's sort of the, the future direction? What are you working on when it comes to the business? I try to break free of the the limiting beliefs and the structure that I learned when I started my career 12 years ago. And I love trading my clients one-on-one -on -one in person too. That scales to a point, but I'm trying to think about, all right, how do you scale the ability to reach more people? One of that, of course, obviously social media, but how do you leverage social media into brand and business vehicles that can certainly scale revenue and your ability to earn a livelihood, but also to educate and help more people. And you've been involved in projects like this now for a while. So what does the future have for you? Yeah, so I think, um, I mean, the first thing that springs to mind for me is being able to kind of automate what I do as a, a clinician. So um, we, we've developed an algorithm to, to bring out, uh, you know, a nutrition coaching app. So we have Carbon Diet Coach. Um, and that was really like a game changer as far as being able to help, you know, people like to the masses. So we've now got about 50,000 subscribers uh, to our coaching app. And yes, there's a lot of math and a lot of work that went into the back end of that, but it really replicates what we're doing, you know, at that one-on-one -on -one setting. And of course, being able to take that, um, you know, to the next level, I know certainly one of our main goals for that particular company um, is to make it feel like a coaching experience. So we want to be able to have coaching cues. We want it to be able to identify complex sets of data that you and I might look at as a coach uh, and be able to visually see because we're doing all these comparisons across your clients' check-in information. Um, but now we want to be able to apply that to, you know, an AI. So I think there's definitely a massive movement towards artificial intelligence. Um, I'd say that that is one of my top priorities uh, for our workout builder platform. Um, so at the moment, um, it doesn't, it has some machine learning, but it can be taken to the next level. So I think we've kind of built out the foundations of, you know, an evidence-based approach to training and diet. Um, but now it's about how can we make this affordable and accessible to a much wider audience? Because one-on-one, -on -one, whilst we love it, uh, there's only so many hours in the day and there's only so many people that you can service and you're slowly going to weed yourself out if you start charging, you know, ten, twenty thousand dollars um for a year's worth of coaching. So, you know, you're when when you know that you've got this awesome set of skills, it's kind of difficult to like you, you need to be able to maintain your own lifestyle, but then you're reducing the number of people that you can touch and actually, you know, support in that setting because of the fees. So um, my goals are definitely related to creating like artificial intelligence and replicating what I do. So um, those are the two things that I'm I'm curious to see. I've, I think we've already seen a big push in the, you know, the training platform world. I've seen lots of apps, lots of young trainers uh, kind of getting on board and kind of building out their own platforms, which I think is awesome. Um, so the next step to me is combining diet and exercise with psychology. And I don't know that anything is really happening in that space yet. So um, one of the things that I talked about going back to school for or to do a PhD in would be kind of merging the scientific evidence from exercise science and, and diet, nutrition science with the, the field of like neuropsychology, because if we can get people to change their mindset, to change those thoughts and those beliefs that they have, which often stem from childhood, um, if we can be consistent at 
changed thought processes. Over time, that's going to impact our, you know, day-to-day behaviours and our actions and also our reactions. And then, you know, with 60 days of this consistent um, new input, new data coming in, now we're changing habits and now we're changing personal character. Uh, and that is, you know, something that we can sustain long-term. So, um, I guess the the neuroplasticity of the mind is absolutely fascinating and the research in that area is awesome. And it really inspired me as somebody that had suffered for a long time um, with depression and a 15-year-long eating disorder. Um, it was all related to dysfunctional beliefs and, you know, past trauma. Um, the fact that I have been able to come out of that and completely like reinvent my life. Like I feel like I am a new person Um, and it's really changed everything for me. Like, so I know that if I can do that coming from somebody that was suicidal, attempted suicide, like twice when I was, when I was a young girl. um, And then, you know, even more recently during times of like significant stress um, and psychological uh, abuse, then anybody can kind of come through, you know, and and make change if they have the desire. So I think one of the initial steps that, you know, helps people start healing and start, you know, changing their behaviour is, you know, being very intentional about who is it that I want to become. And I sat down and started journaling. I was like, "What, what does Holly look like? If I had the ideal version of me, you know, what, what does she say? What does she do? How does she speak to herself? How does she treat other people? Um, you know, is she compassionate? You know, I'd put down all of my values. And then every day, uh, I always spend a little bit of time doing something that is going to move me forwards and closer to that ideal. Um, and it's been a lot of work. But I mean, it's been so valuable because I don't feel like I'm the same person anymore. I'm, I'm able to embrace who I am. I love my body. I love who I am and the value that I bring, whether I'm 75 kilos, you know, 160 pounds or whether I'm stage lean um, and 130 pounds and no body fat. Like I have learned to just embrace like who I am and recognize that there are going to be periods of my life where there is stress and struggle. um, But I need to learn how to adapt and pivot and, uh, you know, react in ways that are going to move me, continue moving me forwards. Um, and it's really opened up a whole new look on life for me. Well, I don't even know where to kind of, there's nothing to add to that. That's just really honest, raw, authentic. And I appreciate you actually sharing all that. I don't know how it, easy it is to actually sort of scale all those things. But I mean, it sounds to me like you have the, the ideas for maybe even a book someday, right? Because that's mm-hmm. that's another one of the ways that someone could potentially scale their reach and their influence across the industry. I don't know if that's an ambition because obviously time is a big deal for you right now and all the things you're yeah. building. But I do like what you said about, you know, what you guys have been doing with uh, Carbon Diet app. And I mean, that's probably some really high level stuff. You got some really ambitious stuff going on there, but that's also why it'll set you apart. And you're right, I noticed too, we're seeing in the industry more people developing apps. We're seeing a lot of really established people as well stepping into interesting spaces. Um, I don't know if you're familiar with my friend, Joel Jameson. Mm -hmm. Joel is uh, one of the leading authorities on heart rate variability. He's developed his Morpheus system. We were in Vegas with him six, seven weeks ago, just at a private seminar. And he's now doing something that I had him on a recent podcast, if anybody's interested in more, uh, 
a program that he's developing called um, Precision Metabolics, totally unrelated to precision nutrition. There's no relationship there. And he's talking about very high level testing, individualized for people. Uh, and again, this is probably like more of a higher end market for sure, but we're, we're getting into some things that have really incredible scaling potential. Again, this Morpheus system, there's, there's a lot of apps and a lot of devices out there that are going to measure sleep and various things. And, and we know that Morpheus is one of the best things out there. And Joel also has a lot of educational vehicles. So I, I like bringing on people like that. Don Saladino, I was just in, in Vegas with him at the Olympia. And Don authentically has a seven-figure business with his challenges, his app, and the other things he's built through his media. And it's why I like taking people like yourself and a lot of the other names, Sohi, and bring them onto the podcast. Because I, I hope coaches don't sit here and listen and go, well, oh my God, I could never do that. This is Holly Baxter. This is Don Saladino. And they can instead flip it and go, every single one of these people did start humble beginnings. Sure, there's a legacy of hard work. People sometimes forget that Don owned a gym in Manhattan for 15 years. How long have you been coaching people? 13 years. <laughs> yes, exactly. I am on my 13th year. And this year recently, like, uh, so this is the first time I've gotten to say this because I had a like a couple of weeks where I was traveling. I, I wasn't uh, on air, but just on my media, I just was surprised when I was in at the Olympia, I was with the muscle fitness booth team and uh, I got my first article in a print magazine ever. It was one of my biggest goals. I just got published on the website for men's health magazine within the space of five days. Those two things happen. That's also five years of writing and leading up to these opportunities. Mm -hmm. And I remember being that personal trainer on the gym floor, seeing all of the educators, all the people who wrote for T Nation, you know, your Dr. Mike Isertels and all these other people who are doing all these high level things. And there's just the rest of us. But along the way, starting with a podcast and starting to write, then all of a sudden eight speaking engagements this past year. And while I don't have that like, like high level app and seven figure business the way that Don does, I'm probably a lot closer to that end of the spectrum than I than I was that that trainer just starting out on the gym floor. So again, it's it's hard work. It's the lessons and the ideas of the people that I get to talk to here and the people whose media I follow that hopefully it'll help a lot of the coaches listening break this limiting belief, the set of limiting beliefs that they have to say, well, I could never do that. I'm not that kind of person. And the reality is, is that's simply not true. Are you willing to put your head down and work really hard at it? And of course, you started this episode with, you know, the effort and the hard work. And yes, there are the boundaries about life. And if you have a young family, you may, you can't do it all. But if you're very surgical and targeted with where you put your effort, what I hope is, is coaches find ways to be able to take, it's classic, take back a bit more of your time, have a greater, find a vehicle to scale what you're doing, what your expertise is. So that way you can also earn a livelihood that keeps you in this business for a long time. How many young coaches end up having to leave the business, especially over the last few years, given the events of it all, just because they weren't able to earn a livelihood or they were nervous about the sustainability. You get to do something that you love. Yeah. I mean, I reflect back to when I was in my early twenties and I had just stepped away from a clinical dietetics role and into the world of entrepreneurship because I couldn't stand being in the clinical world. Um, and I know for probably the first five years of of my career, I did not earn the same amount of income as I did in a clinical role or when I was even between my undergrad and master's uh, as a, a new home sales consultant. Like that was a six-figure job at the age of like 21 or 22. So 
you know, I, I recall like very vividly, like feeling like I was a failure, feeling like, you know, I'm just never going to get to where I wanted to go. Um, but I think, you know, we need to exercise patience. And I think for people that are and know 100% for certain that this is the industry that they want to be in, then surround yourself with everybody that is bigger than you. Like you want to be the smallest fish in the pond, get up with the big dogs, like learn from them, like get mentorship. There is so much value in working with people that have been there and done that. And I mean, even me now in my 13th year um, as, as a coach going into 14 next year, I uh, had a business mentor from October of last year through to June of this present year, 2022. And I learned more in that time about business management and, you know, vesting and scaling and, you know, running a company um, that I had in all of my life. So, you know, I'm still learning. Um, but I think, you know, as long as you're open to the fact that there are going to be failures, you're going to have setbacks. You are going to experience financial loss and, loss and hardship at times. Um, but if you stick with it and you make smart decisions, uh, hopefully based on, you know, information from people that are extremely successful, then your time will come. It's just consistency, dedication, and the willingness to forego a lot of the stuff that many people don't want to give up. They don't want to give up their weekends. They don't want to give up their social life. And, you know, that's a major part of what I do. I can't tell you the last time that I've been to bed before midnight. I'm always working on something. There's always business to be done. Now, is that sustainable long-term? Well, no, I don't plan to be doing like, you know, 80 hour weeks every week, but I can tell you now, like we just did a summer challenge uh, last year called spring into summer. And I'll do that again this year um, or in 2023. But I, we were, we had an original end date for like all the content and the, you know, the copywriting, you know, the actual, the meat and potatoes of this program to be done. And it kind of got fast forward and brought forward, um, you know, earlier because of some other like, clashing commitments that we'd had on our like marketing calendar and it meant that I had to write a book in eight weeks. So none of my other obligations fell by the wayside. I still had content to write for Carbon Diet Coach. I still had, you know, photo shoots to be done. I was still prepping for a bodybuilding show. I'm still trying to be a, a wife and a stepmom and have my own fitness, you know, uh, interests. And the only time that I had left was to write this book from the hours of like 11 till 2. And that was for eight weeks straight and I, you bet your bottom dollar I didn't leave my house in eight weeks I had people over I had to eat so I was like all right guys well I'm, I'm going to be at least eating for an hour of the day in the evening so let's hang out and then you know I go back to work so you know people don't see that and I think they just expect that it, it, it will the success will just come and like they're two years into their their career or I see similar things with clients that have just signed up to work one-on-one. -on -one. They've never had a coach before and they're still relatively new to lifting. And they're like, you know, why, why, aren't I, why don't I look like you yet? And I'm like, yo, I've been doing this for 10 years. Like this is a 10 year span of consistency. So, you know, it's, it really is like just more people that are in this position need to just be vocal about, you know, the suffering because I mean, I know when I first started, I didn't want to share the work, like the hard stuff, like the, the crappy things. You want people to like you. So naturally you're inclined to share the good things. You don't want to say like, you know what, I really suck at this or, you know, this was really hard because then that would share like vulnerability and weakness. So I think the people that have gotten to the top just need to be a little bit more um, transparent about the challenges that they have uh, had to deal with. And I think that then 
for the the other lay person, they can go, oh, right, okay. Well, I didn't know that. I just assumed that you got here in a couple of years. So, yeah, I think just being um, more communicative is, is going to help um, people reach man more manageable expectations for themselves. I think there's so much in this episode. I hope everybody really loved it. I hope it's thought-provoking. Holly, where can people find more of your work, your social media, uh, the stuff that you, your businesses and your, uh, your website. Yeah, I am most active on Instagram and YouTube. So, uh, my Instagram handle is just Holly T Baxter, uh, and everything is linked right there. Sorry, all my content, uh, all the juicy stuff. Um, yeah, you can find me there. Good T for Tasmania. Yes, absolutely. <laughs> um, thank you. I really appreciate you coming on, uh, everybody listening. If you are you know, newer, you didn't hear Holly in the past. There's an old episode with, with Guido, as I mentioned. Go back, and like dig into the archives. Holly's oh wonderful. Gosh. I know. Well, <laughs> it's funny because I don't go back and listen to the old episodes. So you, you it, it would be interesting for somebody to go through them all because you're also going to get pieces of my career evolution too. But the guests who have had things change as time's gone on. But um, yeah, if you're, if you're one of my longtime listeners, please go check out what Holly's doing. Go follow her. Uh, dive into resources. And if you're someone who's a little newer, you're finding this episode through Holly's Media, well, you can go back and listen to that older episode. So he Lee's been on a bunch of episodes and some of the other names that I've mentioned, a lot of people from the evidence-based uh, strength and conditioning and nutrition communities. And uh, if you like it, maybe you'll stick around. So thank you guys so much, Holly. It's been a real treat to have you on here. And for having me. <laughs> my pleasure. And I should be recording later today. So the next episode will be Allie Gilbert. We talked a little bit about you get too deep into hormones and testosterone, all these sort of things. But Allie's really done a lot of stuff there. So stay tuned for that episode. Thank you guys so much.